Well, good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Matthew West, and I'm the session chair for today. And uh, you are, if you are at the right place, uh, this is the database and ontolo ontology mini-series. Um, and this evening we have uh, Edward Bartmeyer uh, giving a talk on ontologies as the next generation information model. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce Ed Bartmeyer, who has uh, some 40 years' experience in computer sciences and has been working at NIST since 1981. Um, his experience ranges from compilers to databases and simulation to real-time control. Um, I found my path crossing his from time to time over the last 15 years, um, always finding someone both knowledgeable and helpful uh, when, when this has happened. Um, he's perhaps most widely known for his work on national and international standards bodies in the area of interface specification, information modeling, and data interchange for manufacturing software. So without further ado, um, over to you, Ed. Um, thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, actually, Matthew and I have probably known each other for close to 20 years now, isn't it? Um, as a consequence of his work in the international standards area. Yeah. Come on, that um, both ways. Yes. Um, it, it does indeed work both ways. Um, actually, I think many of you know me and from a number of such venues. Um, but and, and I'm going to begin by uh, apologizing. First of all, I, I see that the title on my slide set and the title that I gave for the talk are actually different. Um, not that it makes that much difference because the basic basic intent is about the same. The um, but but the other thing I wanted to say is I said this to Peter in the emails. Um, I, I apologize a bit for the I should say the quality of the slides. Um, I think the information that I wanted to convey is here. I'm not pleased with the presentation, and I'm afraid it might bore you. Um, so if you find yourself being bored, well, I expected that. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so I guess, Peter, we should move on to uh, to, to slide two. So um, I'm really going to do um, the, 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 the following thing. I, I, actually, I should be careful to say that the, the first bullet, which says overview of information modeling, really covers a number of topics that might loosely be called information modeling. Um, the, 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 the second bullet, features of information modeling, really is about the discipline as it is understood, let's say, as of, um, I would have said, the mid-90s, because it really hasn't changed much since then. Um, and um, then I'm going to go on and talk a bit about the relationship between what was understood as information modeling features as, as distinct from the features of something like OWL. And I'm going to talk um, at the, then about uh, the methodology, how one actually does information modeling. Um, there's some differences of opinion on that subject. And then finally, we'll wrap up with conclusions. I expect this will probably go about 60 minutes. It might be a bit less than that. It depends. And uh, I should say also that since it's pretty dense stuff, um, if you have a question and Peter has a mechanism by which you can sort of raise your hand and he can see it, um, it's probably best if you do that. And so we interrupt and get the, the issue discussed when it's up because otherwise we get to the end and we'll be going back to 15 different places and you know, that sort of thing. All right, so is everybody ready to go? We'll, we'll go from here then. So uh, begin with the uh, next slide, Peter, number three. The, the first... The first topic here really is the, the overall, the overview thing. And, um, I, this is one of those things that I always talk about. I'm, for Matthew's benefit, I'm going to do the, the Peter Wilson, I have the great hair thing. 
Um, the earliest activities in uh, what we would call information modeling, I would have said, apart from the file systems of various kinds that were developed in the 60s, really were the linked record models. The first time anybody ever really tried to deal with the question of how do you relate information to other information in an orderly way other than in simply data structures was the idea of linked records. And and there were several different products that appeared in the late 60s. The, uh, the, the, the culmination, if you like, was a thing called the Integrated Data Store Standard that was developed by the Codicil organization who gave us COBOL standards in that time frame um, in 1974. And somewhat later, that became the ANSI Navigational Data Model um, Standard with very minor changes. That was really all about seeing data as linked to data. It wasn't about understanding concepts like thing or entity at all. It was really just data as linked to data. And in about the same time frame, you have the very famous seminal paper of Edgar Codd that was the definition of a relational algebra. And that, too, in all of its flavors, was basically a complete mathematical abstraction of data relationships. The question of how that might relate to that which we now think of as an ontology, as, a, as being about entities, it didn't occur until the seminal paper that follows, which is in 1976. Peter Chen published a paper in the, I think, the uh, ACM Transactions on Database Software, if I'm not mistaken. I've got the reference someplace. Um, that was entitled Entity Attribute Relationship Models. And the whole idea that Chen, that Chen generated as a departure was that information is about things. And that when you make the models in which you're trying to understand how your information works, what you're really asking is, what things do I care about? How are those things related to each other? That's what the relationships are. And what information properties of those things are useful to what I'm doing? That's what the attributes are. And that view of, of the world is what really began what we would call information modeling. The the next, from my point of view, significant event is the ISO Technical Report 80.2, published in 1984, um, led primarily by two uh, leading Dutch theorists in the area, um, Cher Nijsen, who was famous for the NIAM method, and Just van Geithausen, um, both of professors in various universities in, in the Netherlands. Um, there were like seven other authors, and Peter Chen, in fact, was one of them. The idea of this thing was called the conceptual schema and the information base. And this was really a kind of ISO version of what was then becoming the ANSI 3 schema architecture. But the difference was that when these guys talked about the conceptual schema, they had Chen's idea in mind. The conceptual schema was the model of the things we are working with and how information is related to them. And the information base is the set of current facts, and we'll come back to that. Um, the uh, Thereafter, there was a whole genre of material that appeared as information modeling technologies. The uh, Air Force funded something called IDEF-1X, which became very popular in the military, and because that acquired tools, it became somewhat standard in the U.S. Um, Hammer and McLeod's famous semantic data model was one of the efforts to formalize some of Chen's thinking into a language that could be used to do data modeling. Nyson himself published the Nyson Information Analysis Method, and one of his students about 10 years later, 1989, constructed something called the, uh, the Object Reference Model, which is really NIAM with very minor changes of symbols and rather more formalism. That guy's Terry Halpin. 
Um, SSADM is a product of the uh, of a British university about the time, which was used extensively at some point by the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of Trade and Industry. I had the honor of working at one point with a group that was using SSADM. Um, it again is another one of these efforts at capturing. The, the conceptual things and relating them to information. And the one that Matt and I are probably most familiar with is Express. This is an ISO standard that was officially standardized in 1994, but in actual fact its origins are about 1984. And it was an effort to do um, something better than data modeling, something more abstract than data modeling, if you like, and it was sort of an information modeling language and has many of the features of those. It was ultimately used for a great many international standards in manufacturing data exchange. Um, and then finally, we have the famous 1990 entry. It has a number of competitors, but there's only one that has really survived, and that's UML, the Unified Modeling Language. One part of that, it's called object modeling technologies, but by the end of the UML time frame, object modeling to the, uh, the relational software, pe the rational software people meant every modeling technology we thought we would bother to steal from. <laughs> and in that time frame, um, the, the ultimate UML really has something like 13 languages. Approximately two of those could be best described as information modeling language, and, and the one that is commonly most well understood in that vein is the class diagrams. Um, at the same time, you have to say that on the other side of the house, out in artificial intelligence land, there is a lot of work in similar veins coming totally from the question of how do you formalize knowledge. And frame-based logics which really uh, arose in the early, in the mid-70s and were popular for 20 years, I guess, probably still in some frames, in, in some families, really were a sort of object view of, of logic models. The, the first order logic has the problem of not being very well organizable. And the idea of something like a frame-based logic is that you want to organize your axioms around things. And in so doing, you end up with this model of things that have slots which look a great deal like Peter Chen's entities and attributes and so forth. Okay. The difference is that this proceeds from a, a, instead of proceeding from an intent to design databases, I guess I should go on to the next slide, these things proceeded from an attempt to organize knowledge that was actually logically formulated. So now that we've moved on to slide four, um, we can start looking at what I would describe as the distinctions among these things. Um, the original models were designed to relate data to data. They, that's what they were thinking about. And in fact, if you ever look at the definitions of relational normal forms, what they are modeled as is mathematical functions of what used to be called keys. That is, they are seen as some data is the identifying data that is somehow the controlling data for a record. Uh, really what you're talking about is something that identifies the individuals that this record is really about. And the model is a model of this key maps to this image data, this range, this range information unit. And it's not a model of the thing designated by this key does, although that's the semantic intent that underlies most of them. The models are all written as data maps to data. And information modeling is distinguished by the idea that you do, as Chen did, back away and say, I'm going to talk about the real things of the business, the real things of the domain, the things I'm really interested in, and I'm going to relate those things to the information about them. And in that process, I use a, com a concept called classifier. I, I use a notion of classifier 
that is going to collect properties. The things that have the same properties fall into something that is a class. And that is the fundamental idea, if you like, of information modeling. As you will notice, and as most of you, I'm sure, are aware, ontologies are really all about defining relationships among things. Okay, And ultimately, they also relate things to information about them. So as we can see, the whole idea of ontologies and information models in the first two bullets are really the same. The difference is that whereas information modeling was constructing classifiers whose objective was to create to collect properties, ontologies really are about trying to figure out how to classify things in a, based on the information you know about them. The, 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 the real intent for ontologies, after all, which is, next slide, Peter. The real intent for ontologies, I hope that's what this is, if we come down here, is to support retrieval of information. The idea is not only do you want to be, be able to retrieve things by what they're called, but you want to be able to retrieve things by what they apparently are according to some other information about them, and that's where the inferencing comes in. This is where the contribution of the logic mechanisms really is designed to enter in. It's not... Fetch what you told me it was. It's fetch what it must be because you said it has this property and that property, and those are the ones I'm interested in. And uh, that is what we're really all, and of course the idea here is that the ontologies are designed to organize information for relevance. If you look at information models, what they are designed to do is to organize the information for comprehension because my purpose in making an information model is to design databases and messages between business partners. That's really what it was all about. And so information modeling has a very definite purpose difference, and that makes some minor difference. And it uses its classifications primarily to describe instances, because ultimately what I'm really interested in is designing that database, maintaining that information base. What is the current state of the world that I'm going to make my decisions on? Or equivalently, I'm interested in what is the current information about this product, about this activity, about this design, about this whatever it is between for, that I'm going to get from my business partner. Okay, and so it's current information that I'm really that my real objective is to manipulate, and I'm simply using the classifications to describe the instances of that data. By the other, on the other hand, ontologies are exactly the opposite. The real object of the ontologies is to is to capture the classification ideas as means of knowing what the subjects are, how subjects are related to each other. We're not so much interested in the instances because in the semantic web the object was to retrieve relevant documents. What we're interested in is not the instances but the actual relationships among the ideas. All right? This difference would suggest that these things ought to do very, very different things. The reality is that if you look at what's in the content, the two objectives, although they are completely orthogonal in some ways, right, lead to very, very common ideas about what needs to be captured and what needs to be organized. Um, next page. Next slide, Peter. We're on six for those of you, um, as somebody said, with the home game or whatever it is. Um, I guess I've really started covering this thing. The one big difference um, in, in here, and we're going to see a lot of this, is that in information models, the universe of discourse is the things used by the business processes we're interested in. These things were designed to support some set of business processes, to design databases or messages to support those processes. So the universe that we're interested in is the things that those processes need, use, worry about. All right. They... <clears throat> The classification axioms, as a consequence, that the information models use are not platonic truth. 
They are not about what the scientific truth of the world is here. They are about what this business understands to be the rules by which it operates. Right? If, you know, I, I, you know, it has a concept, you know, the famous Ron Ross example, it has the concept gold customer. Right? Gold customer doesn't have a scientific concept. It means somebody we want to do a lot of business with, have done a lot of business with, and trust, and it means we're going to take some special care to deal with this guy. Our rules for how we determine what a gold customer is, and my competitor's rules for how he determines what a gold customer might be, could be entirely different. Okay, and that's the point. So we're dealing here with the idea that the classification axioms we use are for the convenience of the business or convenience of the activity, convenience of the applications. They, they are not necessarily some kind of scientific truth, right? The big point in the information model is the third one, which I started to, see, to discuss before, which was mentioned in the ISO specification of 1984. There is a distinction in information models between the conceptual schema which are the things which we are taking to be always true. These are the necessities. These are the invariants. These are the assertions that are quantified. It says all things of this kind do this, or there exist things of this kind that do this, and so forth. That is the way this works. Right? In the information base, we are really talking about individuals. They are current assertions about individual things. Those things are not even close to monotonic. What is true today and true tomorrow might be different things. One of my favorite examples is the high-occupancy vehicle. Right? You know, last night when I drove home, my vehicle was not high-occupancy because I was the only one in it. <laughs> okay. This afternoon when I drive home, because I have a carpool and I'm taking somebody with me, my vehicle will, in fact, be a high-occupancy vehicle because it will satisfy the constraint. The point is that there is no, no, con no cont continuity here. The business rule is a classification typically of the time at which the decision must be made. So information models really recognize that the information base is, is transient. Everything in it is possible, is possible to change, including things like classifications. <laughs> okay? That is not true in ontologies, really. The intent of ontologies, after all, was to capture all the things that may be encountered in the domain and capture all the accepted truths about the domain. It is obviously, I think, the case that some set of the accepted truths in the domain are important to the business processes and will be among the things you would capture in the information models. But on the other hand, a great many things captured in the information models are not truths in the domain. Now, however, we come to the next problem, which is that if you actually look at the uses of ontologies, Yes, okay, the medical ontology people are very worried about capturing scientific truth. I don't doubt the nuclear physicists are in the same boat. The intelligence community, the aircraft design community, the automotive design community aren't necessarily all about accepted truth. They are about useful truth. <laughs> okay? So certain things will be chosen in those ontologies that are, in fact, based on what are essentially the operating business principles or agreed-upon engineering rules or whatever they are in the domain. Some of those have essentially the strength of accepted truth. Others of those are simply for convenience. We all agree to do it this way. That way we can make a model that we can all use. We don't all agree that that's true. We all agree we will be able to do it this way, and that's the way we'll do it. That's an important sort of difference. Because those things will, in fact, change over time. Those ontologies are useful for a while and then become useless because the accepted way to do things changes. That's not true of scientific truth, at least not usually. Um, 
the other behavior, obviously, is in ontologies. You have essentially only the conceptual schema ideas. You have quantified assertions. You have very few ground facts. On the other hand, in using ontologies, you often do have an information base. I think we have a question. Is that the way, Peter? No, actually, someone just dialed in. Um, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Okay, thanks. Okay, um, yeah. Stop me if you have a question because I'm going to be be going on here. So, okay. Um, next slide, please. Um, probably this slide is weak. Um, the I, there are some common ideas, and we've sort of mentioned those in passing. The first of these is that the universe is always a set of things of interest. One of the problems is how do you bound it, and we'll come to that a little bit later. The second question is that the, the purpose of classification largely is to make it easier for us to understand the universe. Bear in mind that when frame logics were introduced, they were an effort to sort out the problems that were created by trying to use first-order logic. If you use straight first-order logics, there's no easy way to organize. Right, The whole idea of frame logics was to organize information so that you could understand it better, so that humans could understand it better. In the long run, this makes it easier to design software that does it. Um, description logics are very much about classification as the mechanism of reasoning, which is a slightly different version of understanding. But on the other side here, um, information models and ontologies generally have this property that classification is designed to improve understanding. The other idea that they all have, although information models rarely use the term, is they have a concept of axiom. In information models, people talk about schema elements, they talk about invariants, they talk about necessities, they mean axioms. <laughs> they mean the things which are going to be always true, the things which are, are going to be taken to be always true that we will use in order to guide the whole process of the model. The problem is that the underlying concept of truth is different. Taken to be always true doesn't mean that it's anything like universally accepted. It has been agreed to be accepted in some community, and that community can be as narrow as you know, the five parties to this particular set of business transactions. It can be the set of organizations in my business who are dealing with the financial aspects and so on. It's a set of truths that is truth for some set of people, and that's all. And finally, there is an idea in both domains of ground facts. I would describe these as axiomatic truths about instances. That is, the, not, the notion of instances as well as class. Most of, the, most of the axioms are for all instances of a particular class. Um, the behavior of interest in ground facts is that there are statements about individuals which are themselves important. And these things tend to exist in business information models quite often. They exist very, very commonly in ontologies as kind of anchors for, the, for, for references or for certain kinds of classifications. The other observation I would address here is the one about monotonicity. Um, everyone says, well, okay, information models do not have monotonicity in their, in their heads. But the conceptual schema of an information model really is essentially viewed as a monotonic idea. Um, uh, so who is one of our uh, colleagues here has, has made the observation that, you know, literally no ontology is, sta is static. In, in the long run, science advances, engineering advances, things that everybody believes must absolutely be true. Some core of those things remain for 200, 1,000 years maybe. All right? Some other part of the core, which is universally accepted in 1950, suddenly proves to be wrong in 1970. Um, slightly wrong, you have to fix that. 
That sort of thing is basically the characteristic with a conceptual schema. In general, conceptual schemas are designed to guide the business. At some point, some elements of the of the business of the activity change. Those things necessitate changes in the conceptual schema. But they are no more frequent, probably, than the changes in a would-be scientific ontology. The idea is that you separate these things one from the other. The conceptual schema is reliable, is static, it hardly ever changes. The current and transient facts, the data, the information about the state of the world now, obviously is transient, and that's in a different place. It's separated from the schema. You don't really mix them together. Even in the ontological community, when we apply ontologies to solving particular problems, we make exactly those same decisions. So there really isn't a major difference here in that part of the in that part of the activity. Um, next slide, Peter. There is a question uh, oh, good. from someone Thanks. in the 301 area code. This is Terry Longstreth. Um, I'm asking about the last bullet on chart seven. Uh, are you going to go into more about the the uh, the nature of an information base in, a, in an ontology implementation? Because I, I, I've I've always I really don't see um, don't see that being explicitly described in many many cases. Uh, the, 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 the the boundary between the information base and the conceptuals or the schema is very clear in, in a database environment. I don't I don't know quite how we define it in, in an ontology. I, 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 I would. Uh, I'm sorry, Terry. I, I would. Yes. I, you know, oddly enough, I hadn't actually thought to address that in any detail because I I made the assumption based on my experience with uh, I would describe them as knowledge engineering systems of the 90s that this is a this is a characteristic difference of those systems as well. The rule base, if you like, is kept in one place and the current knowledge base is in another. I mean, that's not so much true in prologue systems, but it's certainly true in most of the KES kinds of schemes. And to the extent that I have seen what we should call ontologies applied to um, live information, it's true that there are systems that don't really separate these. What I have seen, though, in um, I'm somebody who is more familiar with the use of things like Protege and Racer and so on could tell me, but my experience, my limited experience with this is that um, what is typically separated in some of those systems is the distinction between the hypothesis base and the uh, and the and the knowledge base. And the hypothesis base is essentially the information base. It's just here are the current facts that I'm going to say. Well, this is the stuff I think is true. And I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying this is the stuff I think is true. So when you're reasoning, you can use these. <laughs> okay. But at the end of the at the end of the world, you know, at the end of the time, when you're done, please throw all this hypothesis stuff away. It's not part of the model. It's not part of my ontology. Um, and that distinction is the only one I've seen. Um, as I said, other people who have more experience with that might be able to answer that question better as to what the tooling actually does in that vein. Um, what, my, what I'm really what I'm really interested in is how do, how does information bleed from one bleed across that boundary? Uh, you know, the, the things that, that start out as as hypotheses become part of your of your um, part of, part of the the ontological concept list. For, for one ah, yeah. The, the, this is this is a. The, I, I have, I've certainly seen systems which are fairly careful to separate the ideas that if you reason solely from what I should call the rule base or solely from the ontology, you can make a whole set of conclusions based on the inferencing mechanisms that you know as to new facts in the ontology. And in fact, 
most of the owl reconciliation engines do exactly that. So you feed it the ontology. It's a description of the effectively the classifications of the world. You do what the owl people call T-box reasoning. You, re- you reason against the classifications and <laughs> the classifications and properties. And at the far end of that, you have new knowledge about classifications and properties, and you record that as knowledge. That is part of the ontology because it was inferred from the ontological elements. Then when you're actually dealing with a case of application of the ontology to the world, you now have to separate out the idea that there are these transient facts, these hypothetical facts that get thrown in here. When you're doing the reasoning in that that state, you don't really sort those out. You could, and some systems I think do, but but by and large, the reasoner, when it's doing that, doesn't sort them out. However, when it's done, however, when it is done, what you have is a, 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 exactly what you described. You started with an axiom set, okay, which is your, your original ontology. You added this set of hypotheses, and now you've got this set of conclusions from those hypotheses mixed in with everything else. The reality is that, okay, that new thing that you've constructed is, in fact, an information base which is only valid on the basis of the hypothesis, hypotheses you gave it. If any of those is wrong, it's all crap, and you have to throw it away and start over. <laughs> okay? And, right. and that is the problem. But if you, if you really have to sort out what happened, you then start needing a lot of other um, reasoning technologies. You, you do need to maintain, for example, proof paths. And you may need to have some. Um, I used to call the, they used to call this ethic reasoning stuff. You, you need to deal with the question of when I find a contradiction, what fact that I started from is most likely to be wrong. Um, there's a whole set of issues like that that are really, I would have said, research problems in many ways. Even the proof path is, issue is a bit of a problem because, of course, the proof path can freely use knowledge out of the ontology, but every time it uses something from the hypothesis base, you need to note that that's, of course, any conclusion you draw now is going to be subject to the hypothesis base. And the real problem at the far end is to be able to trace what hypotheses were were used in creating new information so that you don't need to correct any information conclusion that wasn't drawn from one that you withdraw or find find to be in contradiction. And so there's a whole set of, you know, it's a really complex process in which you're tracing tracing the reasoner. Uh, this is really not my domain of expertise. I've seen bits of this. I know how it works, but I really don't want to... I, I would say, Terry, that I, I I appreciate that this is an interesting problem, and it probably wasn't really addressed in my bullets. I probably should have done. Um, there are better experts in this community on that, and in fact, I think um, at least one of them is on the call, and that's Mike Gruninger, but I, I, I only say that because Michael and I have worked together before. I don't doubt there's other people in the community. Um, I heard some other names go by that I recognize who are probably equally uh, informed in this area. So I'd prefer to, you know, this is something we probably ought to discuss in the forum, but uh, I'm not going to be much help on if if that's okay with you. That's fine. Really, once you told me there was a a research problem involved in it, I was willing to accept that as the answer. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Um, uh, Can we go on to slide eight? I guess we've moved on to... uh, Thanks. Okay, um, I'm now going to do a a, a real, uh, not a very quick, I'm afraid, a fairly long and involved, I'm afraid, overview of information modeling. And um, 
the uh, and and this is really made, the object here is to pick up the features. I think some of these will come as a surprise, mostly because the uh, the set of features of information modeling and the set of features of OWL. Um, well, when we get to the comparison, you'll see, but you'll have realized long before that. I think let, let's uh, let, let's just uh, we will leave us in a bit of suspense and go there. Um, next slide, please. That's nine for those of you following at home. <laughs> okay. The, the the first and most important idea in all of these things is classifiers. Um, in information modeling, there are in different information modeling languages three kinds of concepts that are called out. And the middle one is very, very fuzzy, and yet in some cases it's very, very important. The first one is the entity type, um, also called the object type, but Usually we don't know what that means, so it's easier to understand entity type. The idea of the entity type is it's classifying the real things in the universe, the real conceptual things that doesn't make a difference. The point is it's not about data. It is about the things you're manipulating. It's about the things of the business. It's about the things of the application. It's about the things of the engineering domain. It's about the things of the science. An entity type really in information modeling is viewed as a template for capturing the current information about things of interest. It's a statement of what things I do care about about that thing. We say it's a collector of properties, but you have to remember that the intent ultimately was to do things like designing database and messages, so it's a template that tells me what things, what properties about this thing I'm going to care about. All right. The, the idea of an entity is that it's a model of the state of a thing, and this is very importantly different in some ways from the ontological idea. It's a model of the state of the thing. It is, in fact, the set of information which is currently true about that thing relative to the properties I'm interested in. The identity of the thing, that is, what this thing really is, which individual this is, whether this individual is one of these, and so on, is very different from its state. The state changes. The identity doesn't. The individual is the same one, even if today he's an HOV and tomorrow he's not an HOV. The individual is the same one if today he's an employee and tomorrow he's not an employee. The individual is the same one if his hair is long today and short tomorrow. Okay, That's the idea, that the identity is distinct, the state is... So there is an identity notion and a state notion, and in entity types they are, in effect, known to be different. It's not true that every entity that we model has states that change. And therefore, we have the second idea that it characterizes entity types is that entity types are the domains of properties. If, that, if there is knowledge about this thing, then it's an entity. <laughs> okay? That's really the best way to describe it. If there's knowledge about this thing, it is an entity. Um, the value types are the things which constitute the knowledge units that nothing is about, but rather they are about other things. Value types is classify, are classify, classifications of information. They are not classifications of thing. Now, unfortunately, of course, some things are information objects, <laughs> and those things nonetheless have meaning. I mean, a book, if you think about it, is an information object. And so the idea of a value type classifying information doesn't mean that every information object is a value type. The characteristic here is that value types are only the range of properties, and probably much more importantly, the idea in a value type is its identity is its state. Instances of a value type are invariant. A five is always a five. Six acres is always six acres. All right, the name Charles Smith is always the name Charles Smith. It doesn't change in any wise, all right? And so its state is invariant. The thing never actually changes state. It's always the same thing. So you're talking about a, a, a creature which is the, basically the domain, 
uh, the the domain in the sense the the yeah the domain and a different word here. I'm talking about domains of properties. The domain of a value of a value type. The set of things that are of that type are constants in some sense, and that's really the intention. We note that the distinction between a value type and a data type is multifold, but the mo- one of the most important concerns that gets gets addressed in some information modeling languages is the idea that a value type can be a structure. Um, the idea, for example, of a quantity that has a an amount and a unit of measure is a value type. Logically, it's a single information unit. Physically, it's multiple data elements. Okay, and so the idea of a value type is that still every instance of that five centimeters, seven seven pounds, you know, six hundred, you know, seven pounds, six hundred liters, all of those ideas are are, are still constants. There, there's no distinction there. The difference is, however, that the way in which they're represented as data elements might actually be divisible, and so a value type can actually be a data structure as well as a as, as a simple atomic uh, simple atomic information unit. I would have said even it's probably the case usually that in some sense the instance is conceived of as atomic, although uh, you have examples like time period in which clearly a given time period is a fixed thing. It's a constant. It is only the range of a property. Time periods don't have properties, or at least if they do, you've done something interesting with them. Um, and and so the, the the problem is, however, that it has a start and an end. Okay, and those are distinguishable even inside of the conceptual value. So the structure isn't necessarily even conceptually atomic. What it is is conceptually constant and conceptually only the range of a property. Um, the last observation is that data types are very commonly called out. Information models use them right, left, and center. And data types are, in fact, exactly what you think. They are computational values. Right, they are the types of computational values. So the data types are generally fairly, fairly, fairly well understood. You know, some people mix some information modeling languages mix value type concepts with data type concepts. Some people argue about what is a data type concept. So you can argue about whether you know whether integers and whether integer is the data type, but binary integer is the is the computational form. You know, it's it's noise. Okay, from my point of view, it's noise. The critical idea here is that integer, if you think of it as a value type, is a kind of number and therefore a quantity. But and that's something that we understand. Integer, if what you mean by that is 32 bits, is obviously machine data. If what you mean by that is just the thing you're going to use in your in your Java program or whatever it is, then you're talking about the data type. You, know, you really are talking about the data type. Um, and so I don't know how to go beyond that, but but this is a big issue because even in information modeling languages, there's a lot of confusion about this. Um, slide 10, Peter. And um, so the interesting thing about information is subtypes. Okay. A subtype relationships, subtype relationships exist among classifiers. And if we go back to the previous slide for a moment, classifiers include both entity types and value types. Subtype relationships can exist, and we can go forward again, Peter. Subtype relationships can exist on both of those. Subtypes are not restricted in good information modeling languages to entity types. They are restricted in languages like Express <laughs> to entity types. Okay, and that's an, uh, you know, and that's the, one of the problems. I should say very carefully that as I haul out these ideas, I, I mentioned early on that there were half a dozen major information modeling languages uh, that, that have had their their heyday or their domain of users. The concepts I'm giving you here is uh, are a collection of concepts gleaned from at least such languages, with the consequence that there's probably no one language that has all of these. 
And that's part of where I'm going to go at the end of this process. So the subtype relationships among classifiers. First of all, everybody understands the idea of subtype. All right, it's it's S is a subclass of E if every instance in S, uh, every instance of S is an instance of E, and it, it's true of value types as well. You know, it, is that for every integer is without loss of generality a a a um, a, a, a fractional number if you like. It just happens to have a fraction with, which is zero. Um, one of the other behaviors that is important and is not typically the case with values, but occasionally is, is the idea of multiple supertypes. The same thing. The same subtype can be a subtype of more than one supertype. All right. All that's said here is that if you're a member of S, you're also a member of E. There could be several different E's which have that property, that if you're an S, you are one of those as well. Okay. And, in fact, some of them are defined that way. The One of the other ideas that you see is the idea of exclusion. It's exact. It's exactly the reverse. If X is, if T is an instance of E, then T is not an instance of some other type D. It, it's, and there are no T's that are both E's and D's. D, E and D don't intersect. This is a relationship you want to be able to capture. The third one that is most commonly used is the idea of covering relationships. I'm using a term here. There are a number of other terms for this. E is covered by a set, a set of subtypes S1 through SN if every E and E is an instance of one of them. That there aren't any instances of E that are an instance of none of those, and that's why they are said to, to, to cover it. Everything that every every guy who everything that is an E is going to be one of those is going to be an instance of one of those S's as well. All right. Um, one of the things that happens that you do see, and some languages call this out explicitly, is the idea of mutually exclusive coverings. That is, not only are S1 through SN not only is every E a member of S1 and through SN, but every E is a member of exactly one of S, S1 through SN because no SI is the same has the same member as any member in common with any SJ. Okay, and so you get this property that these are partitions. They actually divide the world into subtypes that have that are individually modeled. And finally, there's an idea that is not clearly terribly useful, but it is important, I suppose, in certain implementations, is the idea of an abstract type. Any type that is covered by an identified set of subtypes, right, is said to be abstract, which only means that there are no instances of that type that are not instances of some of some subtype. Okay, and that is obvious by the statement that there's covering. But what it usually means is that everything of this type has a narrower classification, which means that although being a member of this type may have some general properties that are useful generally, right, when you look at one of them, you're always going to find out more information. There's always more to know about it than that, and that's sometimes useful. Oh, sorry, page down. Um, that's just a, slide 11. Right. There are a couple of ways in information modeling of constructing classes. People probably don't necessarily think of them as that's what they do, but several of them have the idea uh, have these ideas, and one of them is the idea of a union. Um, it's also called a choice type in certain languages and a select type, I believe, in Express. And the idea here is that what you're saying is that class E is the union of classes. In this case, it says F and G, but in general, it can be any number of things. And all you're saying is that I'm going to construct this, this new class by saying it is the set of anything that is a member of any of these others. Okay? Most of these things, we'll come to this in a minute, most of these things are created to be the domain of some property. 
The problem that arises is that properties are attached to domains, and you're going to see these things getting be, be created so that it says, this property applies to things of any of these types, and so I'm going to create a union type that says, a member of any of these types is one of these, and now I can assign the domain of the property to this new type that I created. I'll, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Union types are obviously abstract by construction. The other problem is that union types, as defined in some languages, cannot actually have any new properties associated with them, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly what happens. Usually, union types do not tend to have new attributes associated with them. There are new information units about them. What they do have is... What they do have is roles. They assume roles in properties. And that's what you're really looking for is the union type is about eligible something. Okay? Um, intersection is much less commonly used. It's the idea that says class E is defined to be the intersection of two classes, F and G. And it's almost always two. Um, it might be more than that, but it's almost always two. And all you're really saying is these are the things that have both of these sets of properties. And that group might be interesting. And so you do see those occasionally. It's pretty rare to actually see them in information models, although it's not so rare to see interse intersection in the languages. The one that is much more common and probably should have been second is relative complement. Um, if S is a subtype of E, then I'm interested in the things that are E's that aren't S's. There, that's the E has a major subtype, and then there's everything else. I'm interested in separating the world into two classes, the, the, the major subtype S and everything that's not an S. And it's relative complement. Um, you have to be careful, but the idea here is that it's a subtype of E. I'm interested in all the E's that are not S's. It's really a difference, and that's what I mean, and so that's the idea. Um, this is a very useful idea, obviously, in trying to sort out knowledge, and that, of course, is what the information modeling is about, especially when you're dealing with business properties. You have the situation where it's one of these, and it gets this handling. It's not one of these, and it gets some other handling, and that's what the rule is. Um, and so the idea of having a relative complement that says these are all the E's that aren't those, right, is the way in which I'm going to be def I'm going to define the handling, the properties, and so on. That's what it's about. Next slide, please. All right. Um, okay. The further observation is that in information modeling, there's a lot of subtle ideas that show up. We said, after all, that, in, that it's a model of the state of the things. The problem is that it may Sometimes the classification is some kind of model, it's some kind of Linnaeus kind of thing where the object really is to understand a taxonomy of things, the object really is to separate out the notional characteristics of things. Other times entity classes, because they don't have any other concept, simply represent a role. It says, these are the things used in this process in this wise. There's nothing intrinsic about them other than that. They have this role in this process, or they have this role in, as we said, union types often, have this role in some relationship in some property. Right? The other thing that they can represent is states of things. You can talk about subtypes of a thing which really represent the same thing in different states. So individuals of the type, of the main type, are in different states, so I have three subtypes. You know, the, the old business of, for employees, you have prospective employee, actual employee, retired employee, for example. Um, you know, all of those are, 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 are the, in many cases, the, the same individual simply over time graduates <laughs> through those three classes of thing. They are not in any kind of intrinsic classification. Their modeling changes the state. Okay, and the thing is, though, that when you change state in a, a lot of business environments, properties come and go with the state. 
right? As you, you you have a pension fund, but you don't have a pension when you're a, when you're a current employee, but when you're retired, you have a pension, right? It's it's those ideas, for example, that cause these things to be modeled as entities, even though they may very well represent roles or states. This is very different from the way in which they are usually used in ontologies, but it's very important to actually information modeling. And one of the objections in a lot of information modeling texts is that, oh, it would be nice if I had a distinction, a way to say that's what this is. Well, it might be, but in the long run, it's not going to change much of anything you do with it except to clarify what the intent was. And that has its value, and then again. Right? Um, the other behavior is that, as I said, there's no notion really in entity classes of intrinsic properties. People do talk about this concept of intrinsic property, and that's the one that people really want to be able to say, ooh, this is intrinsic somehow. But you have a hard time getting people to agree on what's intrinsic. Um, the, as I said in the bullet below this, is you find that people making models intend intrinsic classifiers, but I've yet to see a language that can tell you that's what it is. Um, the uh, a, a thing, important idea, because it's anathema to the object folk, a, a thing can be an instance of multiple entity types at the same time. Right, The same thing, a typical ontological idea, this thing can simultaneously be, this, this person can simultaneously be, you know, a cleric, and, uh, can simultaneously be a, a cleric, a minister in his church, and an employee of this organization, and something else. Right, All of those are, are, are different types. They have nothing to do with one another, but it's the same thing who is, who is an instance of all of them. Okay, That actually is a very common idea in information models. It's not a common idea. In fact, it's nearly anathema in object models. The, the other behavior that is a, as a consequence of this is that the default relationship among subtypes of a type is overlap. The, unless you tell me, there is no assumption that there's exclusion. Right? Is, if you know that no two of these, no instance is ever an instance of both S and T, then you can tell me that. Otherwise, the assumption is they might be. And that is the way you want it to work in information models, especially when you're talking about adding knowledge to the information system as you go. It's also important in ontologies to do it that way. The other idea that, of course, has no meaning in ontologies is the idea that a thing can change classification over time. As we said a minute ago, the uh, the situation here is that since entity classes can, for example, represent roles and states, things can become classified as something for a while and then cease to be. This is important in information bases, obviously. It means that conclusions that you drew from this thing by the fact that yesterday it was an X and today it isn't an X, okay, are in fact um, no longer valid. And so classification doesn't have anything to do with the persistence of properties because classifications themselves aren't persistent. And that's a, uh, that, that is a critical idea. And uh, the observation here is simply that being an instance of a class is just part of its state. And that is actually, a, 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 and the last bullet is exactly that. As I said, these last three ideas are tend to be not supported by object models, and in fact, you know, they are anathema. They are just, once you do this, my whole object modeling technology is going to break, which really translates to, I can't figure out how to make a Java model out of that. And that's probably true. Okay, so you, know, you have to understand that, that the purpose of some of the models is to make software to support this process or to make a database to support this process. Databases, or at least relational ones, can handle all three of these properties fairly, very easily. It can handle the idea of changing, it can handle the idea of being an instance of multiple types, it can handle overlaps among, among types, and it can handle changes of classification. But it does that by using a property called identification, and we're going to come to that later. Uh, next slide, please, Peter.
but I'm doing okay, I think. Okay, um, I think I'm going to skip over this one. Um, this was an aside to talk about a little bit about value types. It's, it's about classifying information units, and um, it's in there, and you can think about it. The, the main, I, I mentioned some of the ideas in value types earlier. Probably the main thing that's on the, this list is this idea about referencers. Um, one of the things that people in databases and, and other models get wrapped around is the idea of string types. And there's really two basic ideas, that, two basic semantic ideas. String is not a semantic type. And there are two basic semantic ideas that surround strings. And one of those is a referencer idea. This is the name for something. You can figure out which one it is. And it has a basic idea that there's an operation that it supports. You have to be able to test for equal. And you might decide what equal means, but you have to be able to test for equal for those things. That's a property of there being a referencer. And there's a whole bunch of subtypes of that that we do call out. And you see things like enumeration types, for example, all values from. Um, you see things that are just known to be name strings. They're called identifiers or names or whatever they are, and they are intended as, as character strings that identify things. And finally, you have these things that are official codes the codes for the countries, the area codes for telephone numbers, social security numbers, and so on, that are taken from assorted registries that are identifiers for things. All of these ideas right, are all about names, things that are referencers, whereas the other common string type is the, bottom, is the one at the bottom called text. Right? There's a very big difference here. Text is simply about a body, a body of characters that's going to mean something to somebody. And usually, we mean that somebody's going to be human, but not uh, atypically when you're actually talking about these manipulations in information sets. You mean this body of text, for example, is an XML description of a blat. Okay, and it corresponds to some particular model of BLAT, which I don't really need to look at because I don't care about those. But I do know that there's an agent, which is a CAD system, or an agent that is some other system, that will know how to decode this into something that will actually make sense to people who care about those things. At my level of ontology, I may need to know, or my level of model, I need to know that this is a model of that kind and maybe what agent will know what to do with it. I don't need to decode it into all of its parts because it's not what I deal with, but it's what some part of my business process at, in its own domain deals with, and so I have to be through. As I said, most of the time text is just a model of things for people. Um, but we're, So the idea of an agent can be software or person. And I, this is just sort of the aside. The rest of the stuff we've, we sort of talked about. Moving on to, to uh, the next one, 14. Um, properties. The next most important thing after classifiers is properties. Um, Peter Chen introduced two words, which people have used pretty much ever since. One of those is attributes, which in OWL are called data type properties. And what that means is exactly what is said below it. The domain is an entity, and the range is a value. And there are things called relationships, in which the domain is an entity, and the range is an entity. We will come later to, to the question, which I probably didn't have a slide for, um, which is the issue about how you can tell an entity from a value when you're not sure. Um, it really doesn't make a difference in some sense, um, and we'll come to that. The idea of inverse relationships um, is simply that the relate, if you have a relationship between two entities, then either of them can, we can call it perceive it, either, either of them can consider itself to be the domain because either of them, they're both able to be domains and they may, you may at different times see one of them as the domain and the other as the domain. So you actually have two relationships, you have two properties, one of which has the first as a domain and the other one has the other as a domain, but it's connecting the same individuals and the semantics is effectively the same semantic with the subject and object reversed. So 
that's the idea of an inverse relationship. Almost all good information modeling languages have this concept. And the term that is sometimes used, um, I think Nyson is the one who really started calling it this, is that they have different readings. What I really have is a different spelling of the relationship when I write it, when I, when I change which guy is the domain and which guy is the range. But the meaning, the underlying semantics is the same. It's similar to um, what one technology uses as active and passive voice. All right, you know this is the uh, you know one guy one guy one guy uh, gives the thing and the thing is the uh, one one guy is the is the giver and the other guy is the recipient and so you know the 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 one is you know x gives to y and the other one is y receives from x and the the process is exactly the same and so that's that's really what's going on that's what is meant by reading the other idea that's very important about properties and you see this in all information modeling idea, all information modeling, because it has a great deal to do with the construction of databases among other things, is the idea of cardinality or multiplicity. The term cardinality is actually misused. Um, if you think about cardinality as being the mathematical idea of the size of a set, it is the size of a set. It's probably not the size of the set you think it is. <laughs> and that's why UML uses the word multiplicity. Others use alternately. I've seen both words. The idea simply is that when they talk about multiplicity, they're talking about how many of these, how many, how many instances of the range can one domain entity have, okay? And thought of properly, what you mean is that given that there is a property P and a domain element D and several different things to which it belongs, there are several different instances of the property. You can have the same property type, multiple instances of the property, and the question is, how many do you have? Well, a given entity can have zero, one, sometimes n. Some languages allow you to say or unbounded. I can say you can have any number. Okay? These are all obviously things that people work with. One of the observations I would make here is that part of the reason why zero and one appear here is that they're both special. <laughs> All right. If the if what you have is allowed to be zero, it means you don't have to have any. The property it means the entity can have this property. It doesn't necessarily have the, instances don't necessarily have this property. As soon as the number is one or more as the minimum cardinality, it means that you have to have this property at least once. Okay, and that's an important distinction that is more than just how many. Right. The difference between you know having one and having more than one. Having one as the upper bound is important too. You can only have this once is a, is a critical idea. Having it more than once, well, that that's once you've got more than once, it's more than once. There are some information systems in which the representation has to change if you have it more than once. Um, really makes no difference. The important idea here is that you can that these things exist in information properties in information models. The other behavior of importance is the one that I was just saying is how you distinguish why you don't you, you have to be careful about card Cardinality. The cardinality, you know, a person does not have a set of phone numbers. A person has a phone number. The same person can have several phone numbers. So you have five instances of the property person has phone number, all of which have the same person and five different phone numbers, right? A set of phone numbers is not very useful. You don't dial a set of phone numbers. You dial a phone number. So you want person has phone number to be the property. And you really need to distinguish from an information modeling point of view the idea that this is a set of the same property from having a property whose range is, in fact, a set. That is, And so if you actually had a set of phone number, that's a thing that is the value of the property, and that's not what you mean here. And so that's the distinction. 
cardinality is the cardinality of, of a set. It's the size of a set. You have to recognize here that the set you're talking about when you use cardinality is the set of instances of the property that have the same individual as the domain member. Okay, that's the critical idea. It's not the size of the range, which is which is the which is the alternative interpretation. Um, next slide, please. I got to move a little bit faster. We've been going well. They get a little easier from here. Um, Peter, next slide. Thank you. Okay. Um, one of the things that people probably don't realize is that a good many information modeling languages have. Um, wait a minute. Yeah. Okay. What happened to? Did I just do? We're at 15. Okay, good. Sorry, we moved on before we... All right. Um, the, uh, one of the things that is common in information models, almost universal, is the domain and range of a property must be a single class. Um, and that is what gives rise to these ad hoc supertypes, the unions. I don't guess I'm going to... I've said something about this before. One of the ideas is that you, you end up, because the domains and ranges have for, for a given property, a domain, the domain and the range have to be a single classifier. Right. What you end up with is these ad hoc supertypes. You create a union if you, the domain really is applies to five different kinds of things, and they really aren't members of some characterization that, that is meaningfully common. You end up with the idea of the ad hoc supertype. You create a union that says, here is a type which is any one of these five things, and that's the domain of this property. And most of the time, that's what goes on. That's what union types are mostly built for is that purpose. The other notion that you really need to recognize here is this idea of mutable and immutable properties, which is that in information modeling, a property, the value of a property can change, right? Even having it and not having it can change. It's another one of those things that in the information base, the value of the property today is three and the value tomorrow is four, even for the same individual, or today this individual has one of these and tomorrow he doesn't have one of those. Those things actually happen very commonly in information bases. So you do, in certain information models, have the ability to label a process uh, a property immutable. If this guy has three of them today, he will have three of them tomorrow, he will have three of them next week. Okay, that is that's the immutable property. When you were born, whatever numbers you got for this property are the are the same. Certain properties you want to be immutable usually are the properties that identify the object, and so you have that. But that's the intention, and you can mark a property as immutable. Obviously, in an ontology, the presumption typically is that properties are immutable, and that's part of the trouble. Um, next slide. Next slide. Um, yeah. Okay. And now some. These are the things I was about to say that that are things that people probably don't expect to be the case very often, that information models actually contain the ability to, mo to model these things. UML finally grew most of these things in the uh, UML version 2, but um, uh, languages like NIAM and ORM actually had versions of these things back in the 80s. Um, and um, in varying ways, certain other languages were able to express these ideas, although in different ways. One of those ideas is property implies property. If you have, if you have, if, if, if element D here in the domain, right, has a value V such that, that he has property P, so has a property P that gives him value V, then you can say that if you have a property P, then you also have a property Q. That is, there is some X that for which Q, for which you also have a relate to which you have a relationship Q. Um, note here that the statement is that there's no relationship between the values. It just says that if you have this property, then you must have the other property, right? The values of the two properties can be different. Right. The other idea is exactly the reverse. The property excludes properties. If you have D, you never have Q. If you have P, you never have Q. 
Right? And that, that's the other behavior, right? And finally, there is this idea of covering. It's exactly like subtypes because, of course, they have some of the similar ideas. That the idea of covering is that, that you must have at least one of the properties P1 through Pn. This is commonly the case where you model there are, you know, let us say, two different relationships that you might have to and to, to something else, right? And the choice here is that you is that you either have you have either the first one or the second one. Everybody has one of those two relationships, and so you have this idea of a covering. It just says everybody has to have one of those two relationships. Each relationship is independently optional, right? If you model the thing, it says you have zero or one. You know, you have zero or one x's, you have zero or one y's, but you need a rule that says that the properties p1 and p2 cover the type. It says you have either an x or a y. You can't have neither, right? And so that's the distinction. Cardinality covers part of that. It says it's optional, but what you want to say is they're not mutually optional. Together, they, you know, together they together they actually constitute coverage. Next slide, please. Right. right. And now you have the behavior that is less commonly available, which is the idea of not just that the properties implies, but the relationships on both sides relate to one another. The first one is commonly is called implies or subsets, which translates to if X and Y are related by property P, then X and Y are related by property Q as well. And that's the idea of relationship implies relationship. The second is, of course, the, the, the reverse. Right. If X and Y uh, are related by property P, they cannot be related by property Q. Okay. So that's the exclusion. Right. But the third one is an interesting problem. The third one is a very common occurrence, and I think UMLV2 has actually got a model for this now. This used to be very hard to find, and it was carefully defined in FDM and nowhere else that I had seen for quite a while. And that is the idea that property P is actually a specialization of property Q. It's not only the case that if X and Y are related by P, they are related by Q. It really means the instance of being related by P is an instance of being related by Q. And that's a distinct idea. It's not just implication. It's saying there's only one actual relationship here. It's just that for these two guys, this specialized version of that relationship is what's occurring. And if we go to the next slide, there's a couple of quick examples which need to be quick because it's going on 3 o'clock. The, uh, the first one is obvious. Property implies property. If X is an officer of ship S, implies there exists officer Y such that X reports to Y. That's a, perfectly, that, that's a perfectly good case of showing a property that implies another property. Being an officer of the ship means that you have some supervisor. The, um, that's kind of strange, but that's the way it goes. Um, the, the next one, of course, is X's employee of G is not X is eligible for prize P. You've seen this in every giveaway offer you've ever seen. Um, this is a case which is exactly the, uh, an exclusion between two properties that really don't have much to do with one another. The, the relationship case it, it, it takes us down to the ship model in a more interesting way. X is an officer of the ship means implies that X has a cabin on S. So the, the officer and the, the person in the ship are related in two ways, and being an officer guarantees that you get a cabin. Okay. So the and so what, what this is a this is a rule that that that, that simply tells me about the, about a about two relationships between persons and ships, okay, and that those two are related and they are related to the same the same same pair the same person the same ship, right? The the next one 
is exactly the reverse. If you're an officer, if you're an officer on the ship, then you're not a passenger on the ship. It's two relationships between the same between the same pair that are not possible. You could be an officer on this ship of this ship and a passenger on some other ship, right? But what is guaranteed is that you're not a passenger on this one because you're an officer on this one, right? And finally, the last one, which is the distinction between refines and implies, right? If X is captain of the ship. He is he is he's refining an officer of the ship. Being the captain is the same thing as being an officer, but it's a narrower idea. It's a it's a refinement of the notion, and that is the distinction between that one and the being an officer and having a cabin. The other two are relationships between the same two things, but they're not the same relationship. This is the specialization of the relationship itself, and that's the distinction. As I said, these things are get rarer and rarer as you look at information modeling languages, and this last one is one that has been had been appreciated in the literature for 10 years before you finally grew a language that had it, except for SDM. It was in the Hammer on the Cloud paper. Next, next slide, please. Right. Um, one thing that people probably don't recognize, and this is in Nysen's modeling work um, in the mid-'80s, is the idea of a qualifying property. And th this is something that ontologists thought they owned. <laughs> um, the idea of a qualifying property is a property whose existence or value determines membership in a given subtype. And note, please, that it is subtype. It always goes in information models with subtypes. The first case, for example, is, is a uh, is existence. Is if you have this property at all, if you have an instance of this property, then you are an instance of this. Right? That's the idea. So things that have any copy of this property, right, are one of these, R and S. Right. The second case is the case that you're more commonly the case is you you have the discrimination by value. Right. If your color is red, then you are an instance of red car. <laughs> okay, right? That kind of problem. Okay, that that is a perfectly good example. All right, and there are more interesting cases which are you refer to here. You're only testing for equal. The more complicated technologies actually allow you to specify functionality functions. All right, so you can say, for example, if if y is the the quantity of x that you have, let's say, right? If y if y is the if, if y is the quantity of something that d has, then and y is greater than one, then d is an instance of s. That's a more complicated test. It's not testing for equal. It's testing for a function of the property to be to have some value. Okay, and so these are sort of. Increasing degrees of difficulty, information models sometimes allow the, the versions of this. And as I said, this is old. The, these have been information models for 20 years. Um, the, the last thing um, uh, to be observed here is that, yes, when you use a property as a qualifying property, the property has to be generalized. That is, the property has to belong to some supertype. And that's why these things are property, these, the qualifications are on subtypes. The, ha the property has to belong to a supertype so that it can be modeled at all, right? The only way I can tell that you're an instance of subtype S or not is that we are all instances of type E, and E has this possible property. And now, having it or not, so it's modeled as a property of E or a potential property of E, and then I can say things about the instances that possess it or possess values of it belonging to different subtypes. And 
Um, this is just the way life goes, but it, it is, in fact, the way information models see it. And the observation here is that um, the property that you're using, the qualifying property, may, in fact, be described as optional on E. That is to say, it may be said to be minimum cardinality zero. You don't have to have one of these. And, in fact, many of the instances of E may not actually have them. Um, D in this case, as it says. So uh, I don't know how to I, I don't know how to go on from here. But but the idea is that qualifying properties are one of the ideas that go into the idea of class definition in OWL and in such languages, and they are have been around in information. Next slide twenty, and we're nominally halfway through, but many of the slides are real are not going to be very bu busy. Um, yeah, slide twenty derived properties, right? Um, this is another idea that has actually showed up in information models. It shows up a lot more more recently, especially with things like XML paths and joins and SQL and so on. The idea here is the idea of a derived property. This is a property which is constructed by concatenating, is the usual word, or joining other properties. And what you're really doing is, I think what is said here is, I wish I had a picture for this one, I'm sorry I don't, where you're talking about following a path through the semantic network. The example that, I, that shows up here should have been a picture. Um, the vehicle and model are entity types, and weight is a value. Weight is a value type, and there's an attribute that says models have gross vehicle weight, right? And so it has the domain model, and its and its and its range is weight. And there's another relationship, which is vehicle has model. The vehicle is an instance of some model, right? So the, uh, the this vehicle, which is designated by some VIN. It has a particular model, and the models, all models, all instances of that model have a particular GVW, a particular gross vehicle weight. Okay, so now what I can say is there's a derived property that says the vehicle has a gross weight, and I can actually specify what the definition of that property is. Right, that that property is that property is exactly follow the path from vehicle through vehicle has model to give you a model, and then from model has weight to get to the weight, and now what I've got is the pair vehicle weight that is built that way. And in fact, the second version of the definition looks at that from a set theoretic point of view and says, okay, I'm gonna, what I'm really talking about is the set of things that satisfy this property are the pair's vehicle weight such that there is a model M and vehicle has that model and that model has that weight. Right, so we can look at either either way as how we're doing it. These are what the meaning of the idea of derived property is. The, the first form is the form you usually see as a representation in some text form in an information model. Um, it's much more exciting to see these things in graphical form, where you have all kinds of googaws that bind one wire between two two classes to a wire between two more classes, put a name on it, and so on. But and so that's the picture I should have showed you, which in a certain sense shows you the path through the graph. The problem with these things, of course, is that the elegant drawing mechanisms break down when the path has three legs instead of two. And now you have something in the middle in order to get where you're really trying to go. Also, you have this issue of existentials and so on. Peter, next slide, please. 21. And probably the last and most important idea in information modeling. And this is one you don't have in ontologies, and it's really a critical idea in information modeling. How do I know when two individuals are the same or different? I have information presented about individuals, and I need to know whether it's the same individual as some other set of information I have or it's not. And to do that, I need to know what uh, identifies an individual. How do I know which one is which? The class tells me that all the guys in this thing have these properties. What I need to know is how do I tell one guy from another? How do I know two individuals apart? 
And in database land, those are usually called keys. In information modeling, they are sometimes called identifiers. The idea is exactly that. They distinguish instances. And, of course, they have to be properties. They are something about properties. Lots of people understand the idea of simple key. That is, in OWL terminology, it's a property whose inverse is functional. If you have the reverse property, then it only has one value. So a person can have multiple idea, multiple names, but if any of those names can only possibly refer to one person, then that's a functional property, and it has the pro and it has the advantage that when I use that name, I know exactly what person you're talking about. No other person has that name. And that's what is really meant by the rule here. For each V in the range, there is at most one D in the domain that such that the that such that this property is such that this is the property that the property name, for example, of D is V. It's almost always an attribute. It's almost always a value type when you have a simple key. Usually, it is in fact a name. Sometimes it's a number. The relative uniqueness is a much more is a very common occurrence and. It can't be done with simple keys. And that's the problem that property P is unique within property Q. If you are a member of this firm, your employee ID uniquely identifies you. But outside of this firm, your employee ID doesn't identify anything because other firms could have used the same number to mean somebody entirely different. So the problem you have to deal with is that this is person is a member of firm and person has employee ID are two properties, and the property employee ID is unique within the relationship to the firm. And that idea is called relative uniqueness. It, co it shows up in the information models. It's also referred to, and is a problem, it's also referred to as things like compound keys, and, and we'll come to that in, in the idea. The idea is as stated here. I, the example I gave is pretty clear. One of the properties, the unique one, the one that's locally unique, if you like, the relatively unique property is usually a value. But often as not, and the firm is a good example, right, the controlling property, the, 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 the thing that's narrowing the interpretation of the unique property, right, the relationship to the firm is not a simple property. It's not a value property. It is, in fact, a relationship to another object. It's the relationship between the person and the firm in this case. The firm is an object of its own properties. Among the properties of the firm are the things that identify the firm as, a, as an individual. Okay? When I construct in database land a so-called compound key, I'm saying I'm going to take a particular key for the, for the firm and a particular key for the person, put those two together, and use that pair of values to identify the individual. But in fact... I can use this name for the person or this identifier, the employee ID for the person, with any identifier that tells me which firm it is, including starting from the person and looking at what firm it was, okay, in some cases. That will tell me exactly, the, and in that case, I still know that I'm unique within that firm. So how I got to the firm doesn't depend on what key I used to get there. It still is a unique, it, it creates the uniqueness for the employee number. And that's a critical idea in information modeling that is obscured by ideas like compound key and SQL. You have to agree on what set of keys you're going to use to get a compound key. You don't have to agree on what set of key you're going to use for firm to tell me that the employee ID is unique within the firm, and that's the distinction. And that leads to the bullet at the bottom of the, of, of the list, uh, the two bullets at the bottom of the list. 
Anything that is said to be a key property, this distinguishes individuals, must apply to all things in the class. If it's an optional property, it makes a lousy key because the things that don't have it couldn't possibly use it in order to, you can't use it to distinguish them. So you, you want the key property always to apply to all things in the class. And you have to realize that a given entity class may actually have multiple so-called identifiers or keys. There are actually maybe many different things that uniquely identify individuals. And, in fact, you will find in a business application that it is not uncommon that different parts of the business use different keys for the same entities. Um, one of the fairly common occurrences in supply chains you have to deal with is that you have the my name, your name property. Each of us gives this document a number, but he gives it a document a number filing system. So the, 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 the document has two identifiers, mine, business partner A, and my filing system, this number, and business partner B and his filing system, that number. And so you have this property of having multiple identifiers. And of course, each of those identifiers is itself created from a relatively unique, a relative uniqueness behavior. I guarantee that the number in my filing system is unique in my filing system. You guarantee the one in your filing system is unique in your filing system. Neither of us guarantees anything else about the uniqueness of the number. So I have to have the uniqueness property that it is my number and this number in order to figure out what document it is. And that's one of the, one of the, one of the behaviors. But the other behavior there is exactly that, that when I talk about the document, I use my number. When you talk about the document, you use your number. And if you want me to understand what you're talking about, you have to be able to give me back my number. And those are ideas that relate to this question of how you identify individuals. Um, we're getting late here, so I want to move on pretty quickly here. Um, there's one more idea here. The rest of the tables, are, the rest of the slides are pretty much simplifications. Um, I'm going to do, yeah, plus, uh, page 22, please, Peter. And, um, dependencies. This is the last concept, I think, that, it, well, there's one more, that is well-defined in information modeling, but it is obscured in whole sets of information modeling texts. And this is the idea of existential dependency. Um, an instance of entity type E is dependent on a property if the instance can't exist if it doesn't have a value for that property. What that almost always means is that the property identifies some parent, something that owns it, something that brought it into existence. And without that thing, it couldn't exist. The example that I wanted to draw the picture of, and I forgot, is one that is, for example, schedule has schedule line. The schedule line is uniquely dependent on the schedule. Right, it is dependent on the schedule. It's existentially dependent on the schedule. You can't have a schedule line if there's no schedule for it to be on. That kind of dependency is well understood. It is an important idea in information modeling because it deals with the phenomenon of transience. When things go away, like schedules, all of the lines on them also must go away. You can't have any lines left over after the schedule is gone. And that's the kind of behavior that you need to deal with in a, in a, in a, in a process. This is information that is not necessarily useful in ontologies, but it is important to understanding the management of the information in business process. And so that's sort of, that's what the idea is. It should be observed, the bullet that's long about third down on the page, which is that not all mandatory properties are dependencies. The fact that it says, you know, that, that it says a document must have a document type doesn't mean the document doesn't exist if it doesn't have a type. <laughs> okay, right? Whereas, for example, the idea that a schedule line actually has to belong on a schedule means the schedule line can't possibly exist if there is no schedule, and that's the distinction. The idea here is, in fact, between this and mandatory is, is that dependency is intrinsic, 
and it should be immutable. That, and it says that, I guess. It says it's invariant here. The X never changes. Dependency is intrinsic. This is one of those things in which if you have this, you always have this. It's part of your being. And you, you, you can't get around that. And the example here below, I guess, and I use schedule line, the one below here is course having section. You can't have a section of a course that doesn't exist. And, and that's the sort of example that, that goes on. The other behavior here is the notion that, the other behavior that should be observed here is that sometimes missed is that the, the bullet in the, the in, in the small bullet in the middle that reads, sometimes the property is modeled as dependent on the class. Yes, it's dependent on the class, but in fact, you can identify the relationship which tells you what class it depends on. <laughs> and it's that relationship which is the property. So dependency is a modifier of a property. It's not really a modifier. of a, It's not a different relationship to a class. It's a, a modifier of a property that relates to classes, and that's the behavior. In IDEF1X, they actually use a word that is kind of useful. They say E is a weak entity type. Is the thing has the, the the thing can't exist on its own, and the property is said to the, the dependency property is said to support it, right? It's what props it up. It's the thing that allows the thing to exist. Um, next slide, please, Peter. Okay, I'm probably going to skip over these. <laughs> the uh, the idea of part of relationships. Dependency is a kind of part of relationship. It's existential. We understand what that means. We can talk about that. There's all kinds of verbiage that goes by on the idea of aggregations and composites, how things are sets of other things, that things are collections. and they have. It's useful to know maybe that a thing is a collection if you understand what that means. Unfortunately, and I'm, going to, I'm going to go with Grady Booch on this one. Grady Booch's observation is that you cannot write an axiom that describes what you meant here, probably because there is no axiom that describes what everybody means here. And that's exactly the behavior I had noticed, is that you, all kinds of names go by about aggregates. There are several seminal papers. I think one, the earliest one would have been early 80s. The name that leaps to mind is Gear, but I, I, I could be wrong about that. There's a Heim Keeloff paper that appeared around 1990. There's a Brian Henderson Sellers paper on UML that appeared along about 2000. Um, all of these papers are basically trying to understand the formal logic associated with aggregates and composites. As far as I can tell, the one that I really remember is Keeloff's paper, which effectively identified 22 possible axioms and said, you get to pick which ones of these you're actually going to apply. Okay. Um, there is a lot of work in the area of part of and how to model part of, and I don't really want to go there. What I would say about this is that virtually at least every other information modeling language has some kind of part of modeling capability, and I have yet to find one that is clear about what the axioms of its part of relationship actually are. As a consequence, my general rule about these things matches Grady's, which is don't use it. Nobody knows what you mean. Um, next slide, please, Peter, which is on the second half of this, which is composites, which is the other UML idea. I'm just going to skip this. The bottom line is I don't believe in these. Moving on. Right. This is the last idea that is really important in information models, or at least is believed to be really important in information models. A whole set of rules about information models we've encountered along the way. We can talk about cardinalities. We can talk about relationships among types. We can talk about relationships among properties. And all of those are effectively rules. In some information models, all you really have is a rules language that allows you to phrase things like that. 
In others, you have special graphic techniques or, mar- or markup techniques that describe each of those kinds of rules individuals, individually. Generally, when you have a general rules language, you can write much more complex, essentially first-order logic expressions to describe what the rule is. The rules are always about instances. They relate instances to classifiers and properties, and they say this set, a rule of this kind must hold for the information base to be valid. When the, the, if the rule fails to hold, if the, if the proposition stated in the rule is false at a critical point, right, then we don't know what the state of the world is. Our information base is not valid, which means that some part of our understanding of the state of the world is broken and we don't know what it is. And from a business point of view, that's deadly. When the information base is invalid, you don't know what to trust and you don't know how to make decisions on that basis. That's why it's a critical idea. You can't do information modeling without the idea of validity rules. You can catch a lot of them among the properties we've identified. There are others that you need to be able to express and you need to do this. Every language I've seen has some kind of limitations on expressibility of validity rules. Um, there are, there are, there are, how do you reference an instance is a problem. Um, how do you handle existential intermediates, right? The, the there exist M such that problem. Um, how do you, what kind of special functions can you deal with? Right? Do you have aggregator functions? Do you, you know, things of that form that make a difference? And what kind of comparisons can you actually perform? The important understanding about the validity rules as distinct from the way things like OWL and other knowledge-based schemes work is that they are not inferencing rules, right? You cannot, from a validity rule and an information base, for example, conclude that X should be classified as an instance of E. You can in OWL. You can't do that with an information model. The conclusion you draw is that, that E, that X must be an instance of E, and if X isn't an instance of E, then the information base is invalid. <laughs> All right? That is to say, if I don't have a fact in the information base that says X is an instance of E, then something is broken. It doesn't mean, oh, I should conclude that it is. It means something is wrong, and, the, and, and it may well be that the, the, the hypotheses on which I concluded that X must be an instance of E, one of those is invalid. That's why X really isn't an instance of E. Some of the other cases may be there. And, and so that's the problem. You don't know what's broken. All you know is that the world isn't the way it should be. You can't trust the information base. And that's the point. This is not an inferencing rule. It's a validation rule. It says if all is well, these things should be true and should be facts in the information base. If they are not facts, something is wrong. And that's what you're looking for. Next slide, please. Okay, we're almost done. Good. I'm going to skip this one. There's no reason to talk about it. That's why this is a side. We'll skip it. Okay. There are some known issues, and I'm going to really, I'll, I'll kind of run through these quickly. The first one is the idea of diverse keys for union types. One of the problems is if you create a union, what you've got is a set of things from multiple different types in which the individuals may very well have different rules for identity. How do you know which one is which? You merge together a whole, a whole bag of three different types. Individuals are not necessarily identified the same way. In that case, how do you know which is which, how do you know which is which when you're dealing with the domain of this property, which is this union? How do I know the individuals in the union? The problem is that I now need to grow another property of the individual. I need to know how that individual was classified as a property of the individual, and I need to be able to interrogate that. 
right? I have an individual in my hot little hand. The, there are two views of this, one of which is the wrong one, which is the one used in Express. In Express, you say to the, to the individual, what are you an instance of? And in general, you get back a list of 37 possibilities because I'm an instance of all of those. Okay, That's not exactly useful. What I really want to know is, given this union, which had seven types in it, are you type 1? If you're type 1, I need this key. Are you type 2? If you're type 2, I need that key. Are you type 3? If you're type 3, I need that key, and so on. Right? That's what I really want to be able to do. Some languages allow me to do that. Many don't deal with this at all. They allow me to construct unions, and then at that point, the whole question of how I'm going to key individuals goes into a cocktail. I have no idea how I'm going to do it, because not necessarily is the type in any sense instantiated. In my view, the proper way to do this is to be able to ask the individual, as you can in a reasonable first-order logic language, in which classification is a property, I can say, do you have this property? You know, Are you a member of type 1? Right? In that case, I know what's going on. The second case here is the issue of variance of cardinality constraints over time state. When you state cardinality constraints in a conceptual schema, they have to be always true. The rule of conceptual schemas is they are always true. Those are the truths, right? The trouble is that a lot of cardinality constraints are when you're in state X, you may not have one of these. When you're in state Y, you must have one of these. So the cardinality constraint is, you know, zero dot dot one, all right? Sometimes none, sometimes one, which looks like this is an optional property. The reality is that the cardinality constraint is rule-based. So I I end up having to be able to describe those things. I write down a cardinality constraint, which is probably bogus in a certain sense. It's true, but it doesn't tell me anything. And then I have to write the validity rules below that that tell me what the real rules for the management of cardinality of this of this property is. And this is a fairly common issue because in languages in which people either don't write the rules or don't have the ability to write such rules, right? The cardinality constraint that you get written down is the wrong one. It, it doesn't. It, it tells me, of course, what is absolutely true, but what is absolutely true doesn't tell me anything because it says sometimes you don't have one and sometimes you do. Um, the intermediate states is the other difficulty. Um, database validity can only be determined at certain points when you know that a whole set of things that was supposed to be done together has been done. In the middle of some kind of process, it's not necessary that all the validity rules hold. And so you need to know at what points you can actually apply validity rules. And that's a problem that gets you into this whole domain of transactions and information bases. The problem, however, is that there are specific points in time at which you can inference and which you can perform validity validity checks on an information base. And there are other points in time in which you can't do that. Okay, And you need to be able to model that if you're actually managing information models. And finally, there is this question of how do you localize properties. And this is just a, a, a design issue. I'm going to kind of skip over this. It just has to do with... Do you assign the property to the subtype that, to the only subtype that has it, or do you define, assign it to the supertype and say, if you have this, you're a member of that subtype? One of those, you know, one of those serves one purpose and one serves another, and you you can't have your cake and eat it too. Next next slide, please. Um, okay, we're now going to go quickly through the comparison to features of OWL, and if you go on to the next slide, Peter, you're going to see what happens, right? The right-hand side of the, the left-hand side are lists of the things that I called out in varying ways as properties of the information models. Which ones are actually supported by OWL? The things on the right side identify what the OWL thing is or identify that it's supported and sometimes tell you what it is, typically because it has a similar name. Right? So as you look down this list, the first thing you see is that there are a couple of ends. Um, OWL doesn't really understand the distinction between, between types of string, 
and it really doesn't have quantities. It understands only numeric data types. Okay, owl basically has got data type, not value type, in its in its head. Okay, but the but it does have enumerations, which is always useful and important. Okay, and it does have truth values. So. The value types is one of the areas in which it's a little bit weak. Other than that, you can see that we have Ys all the way down the line. The classifications, OWL has classes for value types and has classes for entity types, and it has data types, but we don't need to go there. Okay. And the idea at the bottom is the only one. Classification change is something that, of course, in OWL, which is monotonic, doesn't believe in and doesn't have to believe in. Next slide. Right. Same sequence here. Of all the things you can do in type relationships, Notice all the whys. Everything you can do in information models and type relationships can be done in OWL. And the idea of relative complement actually is supported in two different ways in, in OWL, depending on what you want. One is the complements and one is the difference. And really, relative complement is a difference. Um, next slide. All right. Properties. The idea of attribute is a data type property, essentially. The idea of relationship is an object property. And the ideas of inverse property and multiplicity and cardinality and sets of property instances, that is, that, that the property itself has a set of instances as distinct from its being a relationship to a set. Is an owl, is the idea, is the idea in owl. Um, that properties have single, have, have only one domain and range is also a property of owl, um, although sometimes the, the domain and the range is a thing which solves the problem. The idea of mutable property as distinct from immutable property is, immutable properties are rare in information models, mutable property is not an idea in owl. Okay? And that's the only, and of course it's not applicable because owl is thinking in monotonic. Next slide. Um, again, property relationships, all these things we can do about properties. I'm going to have to appeal to an OWL expert because I don't know whether the, about the third one. That's why it's N question mark. I can't figure out whether I can model coverage of an entity type by properties. Um, what is going on in OWL is that we have all of the other relationships except for the famous relationship refines relationship one. As I said, this is hard to do in information models. It took a long time for information models to actually make the distinction. OWL doesn't. The, all it really has is implication. And derived properties, OWL can do some of those. Um, identifier, it supports with functional property, which means it can fun handle simple keys. It's not clear that it can handle the relative uniqueness and compound key problem. Um, OWL doesn't have an idea of dependency because existence doesn't have meaning, really, in OWL. And OWL doesn't really deal with part of, and probably my best observation about that is, thank God, if it did, whatever axioms it would have would apply to three of the 27 cases you care about. Next, ne next, next slide, please. Okay. And finally, um, OWL is a lot stronger in the area of qualifying properties, although actually maybe it isn't. Um, overall information modeling languages, qualifying properties is a very weak, through, weak idea. In OWL, it's a principal idea. The class definition is what you mean by a qualifying property. And OWL can manage based on presence, and it can ma manage based on value equal. It has a lot of limitations on what it can do on data type, on, on data values. I understand that OWL 1.1 may greatly improve that. OWL does not have an idea that is validity rules. It just doesn't have the idea. Conversely, it has inferencing, inferencing rules, and information models don't. Next slide, please. We're done. We're done. Great. Okay. So, OWL is an information modeling language. It has all the major features, and its great advantage is that it is formally defined, and the bullet below that describes the difference. 
A lot of other information modeling languages are formally defined in a certain sense. That is, they have manuals that describe them that talk about what the constructs in the language mean. They don't, not one of those, is defined using some kind of formal logic model. Several of them have had formal models ascribed to them after the fact. Right. One of Terry Halpin's great efforts in ORM was to redefine NIAM or elements of NIAM in a way in which he could take his formal model and assign in ORM exactly the formal intent to ORM. On the other hand, there are a lot of users of NIAM who have never read Terry's papers. <laughs> and so the, the question is, are they actually using the same modeling te technology? Do they understand his axiomatic definition? Are their model, do their models conform to his axiomatic definition? Only maybe. The trick with OWL is that if you use it correctly, according to the standard, as you read the document, then of course you're conforming to its axiomatic definitions. And that's the big advantage of OWL. Um, the other behavior here is the, is the second one, that OWL actually allows me to do formal classification inferencing. Whether you could do this on a conceptual schema written in an information model would require you to believe in some formal model of that language and then take the conceptual schema as an ontology and do that kind of inferencing on it. In Owl's case, you're guaranteed that you can do that and it is an intention of the language. The observation is that it is not, in fact, much stronger. What you can actually do because of the limited amount of things you can say in a description logic isn't much stronger than a language like ORM. And at the moment, it isn't even strong in the data type reasoning area. Uh, finally, we come to the what is Owl doesn't have. Right? Well, it doesn't have the identifier key meta property idea. And that's a really critical idea. I can't really do information modeling without adding something like that. It doesn't have relative uniqueness rules, which is one of those ideas. And finally, it doesn't have validity rules. And for information bases, probably even for messages in some cases, you really need that concept. Next slide, please. All right, so um, we're finally down to the last. I was going to say a little bit about methodology. I guess I've kind of run over here. Peter, um, do you want to just break this off and let it go? The methodology slides go on. There's two of them. We can throw, sort of throw one up and look at it. But I don't really I, want yeah, to go on. I think it would be sensible just to pass on at this point. Uh, yeah, I, I think we're we're late, and so we'll just let it go. I'd hope to talk a little bit about that. It, it, there's really nothing much there. It, 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 it's just, yeah, exactly. It just says, this is what you actually do. Okay? You, you, you end up starting with process, and that's the critical. And then skip the rest. Go to the conclusions if you like, but skip the rest. <laughs> okay? The rest of them were just add-on slides anyway. All right, and here we are. Okay, so the, the the real difference is exactly the first one. That's sort of what was about. Is, is in information modeling, the emphasis is on what you're trying to support, and you're trying to support processes, business processes, application processes, and I don't mean software processes typically. Um, and so the idea is that's what you're trying to support. It scopes the model in both breadth and depth. In ontologies, you're kind of floundering. You're trying to capture all that you might know because you don't know what you're going to use it for. In this case, you know what you're using it for. You know what the processes are. That tells you what the scope is. And these are really such, the, it's completely orthogonal of the semantic web. I don't really care whether anybody else can use this. What's important to me is that I can use it. On the other hand, what we saw was that it's a model for understanding. And the OWL models are just as good as models for understanding. They are meaningful to the domain experts. They have a correct formal, they have a clear formal interpretation. And there, and in information models and in OWL models, the objective is not immediately to design 
in the model what the implementation is going to look like. Implementation of an information model as a database, as a message suite, as whatever, right, is a separate engineering activity from gleaning the model. The model is what I needed to know in order to do that, okay? And that's what's really going on. OWL can do those purposes. That's why we believe that OWL might be, a fu- might be the future here. It's very, very close. It has everything anybody's ever invented in information modeling language, save for identifiers and validity rules. If you figure out how to add those things, you have OWL, the information modeling language. And that's really where I was going. And I was using OWL as a model. Technically, there could be other strong models, uh, strong languages in this area that aren't OWL. It's just that OWL is the standard. That's the one we know. And that, with that, guys, I'm going to shut up, having talked solidly for an hour and a half. Well, thank you very much, Ed, for all that. Um, that's much appreciated. Um, I, given, given the time, I think I'm going to suggest that if there are questions, they're actually put uh, on the Ontolog forum. Um, but if there's something that someone's burning to ask, um, I guess we can uh, we can allow that now. Um, is there anyone with a burning question? Is there anyone still left alive? <laughs> I told you people are going to fall asleep. One question from another person in the 301 area code. Uh, maybe someone from NIST. Hi, this is Evan. Um, I just wanted to mention, since, Al, uh, since Ed brought this up a couple of times, that uh, OWL 1.1 does include uh, validity rules. Ah, I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. But we are still conspicuously missing, especially the relative identity stuff, which I find a real irksome absence. Okay, yeah. thanks for that, Evan. Okay. Is there uh, anyone else waiting, Peter? Yeah, another question uh, from the 44 country code, probably Chris. Hi, uh, yeah, it was me. I just, I have a, if you like, a more fundamental question to, to ask. Is that I was a little bit... I felt there's some equivocation of your description of information models because it's unclear to me whether you're trying to describe the information that's stored in the system or the real world that the information refers to. And I think you did a very elegant dance of, of if you like, not committing to, to either situation. Then you made it clear that Peter Chen was wanting to talk in terms of any times about the things in the real world. And as a result, I'm not sure whether or not the various characteristics you're talking about are characteristics that you see as um, normal in, in, in information or things that are required in order to model the way the real world is. It seems to me they're, they're slightly different questions, though related. And I wonder if you could comment. Um, uh, Chris, uh, yes, actually, I think you've hit upon a very important idea. I, I would first say, and, and I think it's very important to realize that um, uh, that the, the the distinction between the, the the religious view of information modeling there's a certain set of people for whom information modeling is about designing databases. Mm-hmm. I mean that's all it's for from their point of view, and that's all they're going to do with it. And see their information models. The idea of understanding is half mixed with the design of the database as they build the model. Right? Mm-hmm. This is typical behavior in object modelers as well. So yeah. I discount that because I, I I was taught I should have said I was taught by Nyson that you do the analysis without thinking about how you're going to design the database. The problem is to understand the guy's problem. The, guy, the problem is to understand the guy's business. You need to know what it is that he's trying to to, to work with. Then mm-hmm. you can talk about designing a database. And the purpose of the information model is to understand his space. Okay, it, it's it is. Uh, Nyson refers to what he does as analysis, not design. 
Okay. And so if you mix those two ideas when you're doing it, you do have some problems with it. Now, so at that level, you're right. I'm, maybe I misunderstand, but I I would have said that part of the problem is that when you hear a lot of people talk about information modeling, they're talking about information modeling for the purpose of database design, and they start mixing the ideas the moment they start doing the analysis. Um, I try to... And that really was part of what I was on about. But the other behavior, as I said, is that the set of things that you've got in that list is gleaned from half a dozen or more different information modeling languages. You know, no one language has all of those features. So there are a lot of those things that you simply, you know, pick a language and you, you can only do 90% of those things. Right? Oh. Maybe. In some cases, 70% of those. Right? Oh, so that may greatly restrict, you know, what your model actually looks like. I appreciate a lot of what you say, but I suspect there's, there's another, there are, there are three levels. I think if you go back to the early guys, they talked about the universe and so that having a model of the real world, then a model of the information, a logical model of the information, then an implementation model. And it seems the same game has been played with ontology when you take the philosophical definition of ontology, which is about the real world, and then Gruber's, which is actually about the conceptual structure that you use. So I think there's a, there's a finer distinction to be made that, that isn't clear in what you've just said. I, I see what you mean. I, 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 yes. I think that may be true, but um, I think we're Not getting to the kind of area where it would be much better to be doing this uh, on the forum rather than uh, okay. uh, voice to voice. Okay, Chris. I'd be only too happy to do this one. I'll actually participate in on the forum because I think this is a critical idea. Yeah. Yes, no, yeah. I, 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 by the way, Chris, I, I completely agree. Okay. Good. Uh, I think there's an issue there, and we need to sort that out. And I use the terms rather, uh, you know, I use the term conceptual schema, for example, in the way that NISEN does, in, in the way that the ISO standard does, and it's not at all what is meant by conceptual schema in coming out of the mouth of an SQL person, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> okay, I think it's. Uh, time for me now to, to wind things up, so um, I'd like to say thank you very much Ed, for, for a very useful and informative uh, talk uh, and thank everyone for participating, and especially Peter for all his efforts in putting the, uh, putting the call together. Thank you, Ed. Uh, Peter Brown actually has a question. I guess Peter, you'll have to do that over the forum as well. Yes, please. Any more questions over the forum? Thank you very much, everyone, and good evening. Uh, Thank you. Thank you.